day brings back for each of you as far as your memories are concerned. But when my father was alive, I know that we always bought one of three certain things for him. Uh, I'm sure that I bought my dad an ocean of Old Spice aftershave, uh, soap on a rope that I'm not even sure they make anymore, and butterscotch candy. My dad was always that man in church that quietly tried to open candy and pass it down the road to everyone. And so those always bring back uh, even the scent of Old Spice special memories for me. And we always like to acknowledge uh, the gift that God gives us in our dads. And so before I bring the message this morning, I just want to say that for each of you men here this morning, if you have had an impact, and you all have in someone's life, we have a, a sweet treat for you. So before you leave this morning uh, out at the Welcome Center, every man here, we're going to give you a sweet treat that you can unwrap, not while I'm preaching, okay, but after, after worship. Then we have, obviously up front, some very special uh, prizes to give away to three special dads this morning. Uh, the Markhams have been very gracious in picking these up, and Ken's cards are on display here for Father's Day. How many of you dads, besides Ken, got huge Father's Day cards from your children? I'm jealous. You know, it's good that I'm talking about envy in my sermon this morning, right? Because he's got this. But here's what we're going to do. The first of these beautiful flowering trees is going to go to the dad who has the thickest wallet. So, take out your wallet. Okay. Hold it up. And tell me, I, I know mine's not the thickest, but do you have a wallet that is so overstuffed it's about two inches thick? Raise your hand if you do. Okay, so one, you're not allowed, two, <laughs> all right, let me see yours, Doug, all right, oh, that's close, here, let me see that, <laughs> never give a preacher your wallet, right, wow, that's going to be a tough one, um, let's say, you want to, you want to get, okay, congratulations, you get to take one of these trees home, and I'll bet we even got some youth in the church to help you plant it if you need help planting it, all right? So congratulations. Now the second one is for the dad who has the loudest socks or the loudest tie on, okay? So if you think you have a brightly colored, maybe even obnoxious tie, maybe your wife needs to say, he does, right here, I didn't dress him, okay? But if that's you, if you think you have some bright socks or a bright tie on, raise your hand. I don't count. Yeah, I don't get to go for that one. My foster kids bought me this tie a long time ago. Anybody? Anybody have some bright socks on? Wow, you guys are making this easy for me then. I'll tell you what, Doug, since you didn't get a tree last time, we'll give you a tree for this one for the wallet, and you get one too. All right, now the other one, I'm sure one of you can apply for this one. I will accept this. The dad who drove the oldest car here today. Okay. So if your car is older than, let's start high, 2,000, raise your hand. You drove a car that's older than 2,000. Now you guys know I can't see well, so you have to wave to me. You guys all have newer cars than 2,000? Wow. Uh, 2005. Anybody? Who am I missing here? Wow. 2010. Okay. 2004? Does anybody have 2004 or older? What, what's your year? 2008. 2008. Bo? 2007? 
2006. I feel like an auctioneer. 2005. Anybody older than the, since you've got a tree already, you okay if I give him one? Or do you want two trees to take home? All right, there we go. So you get one as well. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. I love doing that every year. If you have your scripture with you, and I pray that you do, I want you to turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of John with me. And again, I am glad that you're here this morning. It's always an honor to uh, preach God's Word, but it's a special thing for me to be able to preach on Father's Day. Uh, I have been blessed by a number of influential men in my life, including my own dad, uh, who went to be with the Lord many Father's Days ago. Actually, it was on Father's Day he went to be with the Lord. But I love being a dad to Olivia and to Emma. And if you've missed a couple of weeks because you've been on vacation or maybe you're still recovering from vacation Bible school, then, then you know that the gist of this series is that there are basically two kinds of bowlers in this world. And uh, we're going to figure out which kind of bowler you are. Okay? So the very first kind of bowler is the individual who owns maybe multiple bowling shirts They've got their own shoes. They've got their own bowling ball with their initials engraved into the bowling ball. Uh, they're on multiple leagues, and they actually know how to keep score the right way. Uh, they're serious about bowling. Now, if that's you, or if it's ever been you, I guess the easiest way to do this is I want you to show me that you by just applauding. Okay. So, so not many of you. That's because the rest of them are out bowling this morning instead of being in church. Okay, this, the, the, the second kind of bowler, which I'll assume the rest of us are, is the one, maybe you didn't intend to go bowling. What'd I miss? Oh! <laughs> maybe you didn't intend to go bowling, but it's, it's kind of the place that everybody showed up at. Uh, maybe it's a kid's birthday party or a last-minute plan. And so you walk down the rack of all those bowling balls and all the different colors, and, and you pick the pink one because it was the lightest one that you could throw the furthest, and, and you looked at those holes that are filled with flu virus and all kinds of other things, you know, and, and really you were there just to have fun, and you ate some pizza, maybe you got a soda and some nachos. Uh, it really didn't matter if you kept score because you didn't care. But both of those kinds of bowlers, and I'll assume again that you're one of the two, uh, have something in common. At some point, both of them, even if they use those little racks that drop the ball for you, you've got to walk up to the line, and you've got to actually let it go. And what we're talking about in this series is that there are just some things in this life that we just need to let go of. And there's a principle that's true in, in every area of our life. In fact, one of the areas that I notice in, in my life that I wrestle with this is, is how long do you keep food in your refrigerator? You ever do this at your home? You open the door and you just kind of stand there and wonder, how old is this stuff? You know, Cheryl, she comes from a family where everything had about a two-day, three-day shelf life. Everything in the fridge had a purpose. And uh, in, in the home that I grew up in, uh, we just ate things until they were gone, okay? Uh, it could be a week, two weeks old. Uh, you just ate it because... It was there. And so we would have leftovers multiple nights of the week. And my parents even, I grew up with them eating stuff like pickled hog's feet, uh, souse meat, that weird t tomato and macaroni salad, things that I never knew when they went bad because to me they never went good, okay, to, to start with. But we would keep leftovers for, <laughs> for two, three weeks, and if it passed the sniff test, 
or it passed the mold test, we used it. And that might gross you out to think about that. But, but we had a microwave. I mean, it kills everything, right, in the microwave, and we could use it. But Cheryl will eventually regularly go through the fridge, and she'll pull things out, and she'll say, what is this? <laughs> and, and I'll say, well, I, I think it's the marinara sauce that I made. Maybe it's chili. I, I don't know. She says, well, it looks like a Chia Pet, so it's time that we got rid of it, and, and she'll throw it out. Now, here's the thing. It, it may not be food. It may not be bowling for you in your life, but I'll guarantee you, it's something. And inevitably, whatever it is you're holding on to, it finds its way into your relationships. Because a lot of us, we're carrying stuff around from our previous relationships into the ones we're in now. And those people are trying to figure out, how do I fix this? How do I make this right? But they can't because it was never really their problem to fix. But you're dragging it along into the relationship. And as a result, it's impacting them. And we're passing it on to our kids because we won't let it go. In fact, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we we started out uh, talking about how those things can impact our health. We talked about how bitterness can impact liver function. We talked about how anxiety, if we don't let it go, it can affect our heart, it can lower our immune system. And there were studies that said up to 80% of the people who are in the hospital today, they actually began with something that started as an emotional problem that turned into a physical one. Sometimes guilt, sometimes anger. And whatever they've stuffed inside that they won't let go of, it's literally killing them from the inside out. And so in this series, we're talking about four different topics and asking the question, as followers of Jesus Christ, what could happen if we just let these things go? And we've already talked about shame. Last week we talked about anxiety. And today I want to talk about that four-letter word, envy. And I think I know where all of it began for me, that whole curse of comparison thing. And I think we all struggle with this at some point. Uh, You may not know where it began for you or when, but I do. It all started way back in the sixth grade in Lexington, Kentucky, where I was raised. It was a Christmas gift that I was opening my presents, and I got a brand new basketball, I got a sweater, and I got some jeans. Now, normally an elementary school kid could care less about clothes, right, that you get them. But this was a time in my life where I was trying to figure out who I was. It's a time where clothes meant you either fit in with the kids in your school and in your youth group, or you didn't. And that sweater and jeans could help me fit in because, honestly, they weren't just any sweater and jeans. They were, they were U.S. brand polo jeans and a bright green sweater. And back, back in the 80s then, of course, uh, I could put that pink shirt underneath that bright green sweater and flip the collar up Miami Vice style, if you remember that show, and I could look so cool like that. And the best thing about that bright green sweater was it held one of these little guys on it. Remember the Izod shirt? It's what everybody was wearing. And I knew that when school started back up, I'd put that sweater on with that alligator, and I'd walk in, and I would be confident, and all those sixth-grade girls would just drop their books in amazement at me as they wanted to know who this great guy was. And yet, it didn't happen. Be nice. It wasn't because it was me or because of the shirt. It's because over the holidays, something had changed. 
Izod and the alligator were no longer popular. And here came David Emmert, one of my best friends, walking down the hallway. And he was sporting the new thing that was out. And instead of the alligator, he had on the Tommy Hilfiger shirt. And suddenly this sweater that I wanted that was just going to help me fit in didn't matter. And I looked at David and I thought, I hate that shirt. I hate Tommy Hilfiger. And if I admit it, I kind of hate you for wearing it right now. Because I'm the one the girls are supposed to be dropping their books at. And over the span of my life, I've kind of figured it out. It's what Craig Greshel, another pastor, said. He said this, the fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. Isn't that true? The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. That's why envy is a life or a curse even of comparison. That sweater, it was just great for me until I saw my friends. And you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. Some of you ladies, you have dreamt for years about having that brand new kitchen. And you finally scrimped and saved enough and you finally talked your husband into it. And while the renovation was going on for weeks, you ate dinner over a cardboard box or you ate dinner in the garage and you didn't care because you're finally getting that makeover in your kitchen. And when it was done, you took pictures and you put them on Facebook. You sent it to friends. You sent it to family. And you were so happy with that makeover until you went to your friend's house. And your friend just didn't have their kitchen redone. They had their whole house redone. It it looked like Joanna Gaines had moved in. It looked like hashtag shiplap all over the walls. You know, a new interior design. And you got in the car and you looked at your spouse and you said, we got to do more at the house. What are you talking about? We just had the kitchen redone. Young people, you do this with cars too. And so did I. You save up and you dream about that, that ragtop Jeep or that SUV and you get that sweet ride to you that's in your affordability range. And as soon as you get it and you're thinking this is exactly what I want, a classmate or a friend pulls up in a new Accord or a, or a new Silverado or a new S-Class and suddenly you want to put the for sale sign on the car you just got because that's what I really wanted You see, the quickest way to kill something special again is to compare it to something else. And let me just say, for us as adults, it has never been easier to fall into the curse of comparison because of advertising and social media. You go on Facebook or you go on Snapchat, Twitter or Instagram, and you think, man, I was feeling pretty good about myself until I saw what somebody else is doing. And you see somebody, where is that? I think they're on a beach That looks like Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I can't even afford to go on a vacation this year. This is the second vacation that they've had this year. Or you look at a picture, and I've done this before, and you see a bunch of people seated around a table, and those are my friends. And wait a minute, if those are my friends at Los Mariachis, how come I didn't get invited to go to Los Mariachis too? I can't even afford to go over the river and through the woods to Grandma's house and look at all the fun that they're having. Or they take that picture, you know, over a, 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 an iPad where they show they're, they're in a lounge chair and you see their feet and you see the pool beyond it and you're thinking, wait a minute. You know, I hate that iPad. I hate that book. I hate your feet. I hate that pool because I don't get to enjoy things like that. How come my life isn't as good as yours? And I think one of the things we do in life is we compare other people's highlight reels to our blooper reels. 
and we get to miss the concept that they're living life behind the scenes too, but we just don't see that. And you'd think that would just be a problem that we deal with today. But oh no, they dealt with it in biblical times as well in the first century. In fact, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church at, at Corinth and he says this. He says it this way, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we're as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. Now look at this. This is so true. But they're only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as a standard of measurement. And then he gives us his opinion and his summary, and he says this, how ignorant, how foolish, how ignorant it is to sit around and compare yourself to other people. Now you think about that. You see, the minute you start comparing yourself to other people, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to start to feel superior or you're going to start to feel inferior, neither of which glorify God with a heart of gratefulness and gratitude. For some of us, we feel superior. And we would never actually say that. But we think things like, you know, it's too bad for them. If they just worked a little harder, you know, if they just kind of improved their situation or improved themselves, if they just work on their talents, if they just dealt with that obvious sin in their life, you know, God would bless them too. As if we're living in God's favor because of how smart or how intelligent, how beautiful we are. Or the second option is we begin to feel inferior, and that's where envy and jealousy creep in. And on Father's Day afternoon, some of you are going to go home, you're going to look on Facebook, and you're going to see the cards. Or you're going to see that, that somebody took their, their dad out to Texas Roadhouse, or, or they had a grill cookout for, for dad. And you're going to think, you know, my kids, they don't even know it's Father's Day. You know, if, if their brother and sister don't even call to remind them. And you get a little bitter about the whole thing, and you start to feel envious. Andy Stanley once said, most of us, we want to live in the land of Ur. We want to be richer, prettier, smarter, but the problem is you live in the land of Ur for a while and then you want to live in the land of Est. Well, now I want to be the richest, the prettiest, the smartest than everybody else. And we carry that bowling ball of competition and comparison into every relationship, into every job, into every marriage, every friendship, and every fellowship we enter into because we won't let it go. So I want to give you this morning, before we finish now, a set of scriptures that help break the power of envy in our lives and help us let it go. And, and what I love about this is it comes in the form of two people in scripture that we admire. Two great figures in, in the church, actually. The Apostle John and the Apostle Peter. And I think Peter and John, they had this kind of quiet, competitive nature against each other. And I think that because when you read about how John, particularly in John chapter 20 and John 21, talk about themselves and their relationship, they've got these little ways of just saying, who gets to sit next to Jesus? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who does Jesus like better? Because any time that John refers to himself, as he's writing out the details of our Savior's life, as he's writing out about Jesus' story, he doesn't refer to himself as I did this, or Jesus and I went. He doesn't even mention his name, John. He refers to himself as the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. That's how he talks about himself. I think he's writing that down, sitting there with a quill in his hand, thinking, you know, if Peter ever reads this, I want him to know 
I was Jesus' favorite, okay? But here's the cure for envy as we talk about these two men. It's a balanced life that involves being humble. Being humble. Paul is going to share in the New Testament later in Colossians 3.12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself, get dressed, with compassion, kindness, and humility. And humility is a great theme of Scripture. And I, I think this is curious, too, because if you're reading the Old Testament even, as Moses is writing, talking about himself, he'll write in Numbers 12.3, Now Moses was very humble, more humble than any person ever on the face of the earth. And it's kind of funny that he's writing about himself. And so John, a real person dealing with real history, the real account of Christ's life, gives us what I think is a reason to believe in the accuracy and the validity of Scripture itself. Because if you're trying to come up with a religion, if you're trying to come up with a story you want other people to believe, you don't tell your imperfections. You don't tell the things that that others would want to gloss over in life. He does share it all. And because of that, he's just saying, this is how we all are. And this is why we need Jesus so badly. Here's the situation. John chapter 20. It's Easter Sunday morning. Only the disciples, they don't know it's Easter yet. They don't know that Jesus has come back from the dead. In fact, they think Jesus is still in the tomb. There are no true Christ followers yet. There's no Christians yet because there's no Antioch. There's no church yet because, well, Pentecost hasn't happened. Right now, there's just an itinerant rabbi from Nazareth by the name of Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, and he's in a borrowed tomb. For them, it's all over. And the women go to deal with the body of Jesus by bringing different burial spices and ointments. And that's when they discover Jesus is gone. And John is writing this down a few decades later to let us all know this is reality. This is truth. This is how it transpired. This is how it happened. Look at, look at this with me. John 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So she ran and she found Simon Peter and the other disciple. Which one? The one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Again, this is John writing down for Christians thousands and thousands of years later to say, just so you guys really know, I'm the one that Jesus really loved. And he continues, and it gets even better. Look in verse 3. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They both started running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I, I love things like this. I am not making this up, friends. This is God's word. Here's a real guy, and how much is this? Yeah, yeah Jesus came back from the dead, but I'm faster than Peter was. <laughs> Let's just get that fact straight. I mean, nobody clocked me, but, but I was booking it. You know, it was a brisk pace. And, and, and I got there first, and they run up to the tomb. And John is standing there when Peter arrives, and, and Peter goes in. And then later in John 20, verse 8, it says, Then the disciple, by the way, again, who had reached the tomb first, he also went in, and he saw and believed. Those details in the gospel account to say, I just want everybody to know I'm faster than Peter. And I'm the disciple that Jesus really favored. 
Now fast forward a little bit. These men know now that Jesus is alive. And in John 21, they go back out on the Sea of Galilee to what they're familiar with. And they're fishing there. And they're out in the boat and they haven't caught anything. And they hear a voice on the shore call out to them, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Which in fishing terms simply means, what difference is that going to make? But Jesus had told them to do that before. And they'd caught a lot of fish. And so they say, what have we got to lose? And they cast the net on the other side of the boat and they begin to catch fish. And it suddenly clicks. That's Jesus. He's the one that told us the first time. It's morning. Now, now there's probably that early morning fog that just kind of rides the water. That early morning haze that's out there. And look what John goes on to tell us happens. In John 21, verse 7. Then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. It's his way of saying, hey, Peter, I saw him first. I'm the one that recognized him. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his tunic because he'd stripped for work. He jumped in the water and he headed to shore. Now, I don't know if John is trying to say, you know, how much class Peter has. If he's trying to say he's so undignified. I don't know if he's saying, well, you know, he might be faster than me in the water, but I'm still faster on land. But Peter has a conversation that he needs to have with Jesus. And in that crazy moment, an early morning swim turns into something powerful because Peter has some unfinished business with Jesus. I think sometimes we all do. You see, the last words that Jesus heard Peter say before he was crucified and murdered were, "I, I swear to you, I don't know that man. Jesus had predicted it. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And and Peter had said, Jesus, there's no way. There's no way I could do that. And then he did. And Jesus is crucified. And Peter is left with that back-breaking burden of guilt. Those were the last words, my friend. Those were the last words my Lord and Savior heard me say. And now Jesus is alive. And he's got a chance to make things right. And so he swims the shore. And he finds Jesus, and while everyone else is struggling with the fish and trying to bring it all in, they gather and they share breakfast around a campfire. But then Jesus and Peter break off, and they go for a walk on the shore together. And it's Peter and Jesus walking down the shoreline, and Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's got to be thinking, oh, I've been waiting for this moment we got to clear the air now. I've been waiting to make this right. And he looks at Jesus and says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, Okay, feed my sheep. What does that mean? It means, Peter, get ready. You're going to take over from here. I'm still going to build my church through your statement of faith, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter, I'm not done with you. I'm going to work through you. And Peter thinks, Fantastic. We're good again. Matter resolved. And then Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Now Peter's thinking, I'm sure, Jesus, we just covered this. But, but you know I, I, I love you. And a third time he asked him, Peter, do you love me? And I think that third time it clicks and Peter catches the irony. Three denials, three questions. 
And from the deepest part of his awareness, from the deepest part of his soul, he says, Jesus, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. I love that. Because of the forgiveness and the grace and the beauty of Jesus. But let me go back to this whole envy thing and ask you, where is John in all of this? Take a look at what John tells us in John 21, 20. Peter turned at that moment, and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. (laughs) Everybody else is having breakfast back by the fire. John is lurking behind Jesus and Peter. Hey, what are you guys talking about? I bet you're talking about me, aren't you? How come I'm not part of this conversation? I'm still here. And this is great. It's almost like there's siblings squabbling, but they're not. And look what Peter goes on to say to Jesus in John 21, 21. When Peter turned and saw him, he asked Jesus, Hey, Lord, what about him? I'm going to be feeding sheep. You know, what, what's he going to be doing? What's he going to be taking care of? Is speedy feet back there going to be greater than me? I'd like to know that. Is, is he going to be less than me? Because if I can make that a prayer request, hey, that's what I want. I'd like to make that. And what Jesus says next is so brilliant. It is so powerful and so divine, and it has the power, friends, if we listen, to transform the envy in our lives today, to let it go. Look what he says in John 21, verse 22. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, in other words, if I want him to live and never die, what is that to you? You must follow me. Peter, if I want him to be greater than you, what is that to you? If I want his life to shine brighter, if I want him to be more successful than you, what is that to you? If I want people to remember him long after you're gone, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, why is it so important that we hear that? I think it's because of the second thing on your outline. If we don't learn to let go of envy, We pass it on to our children. Dads, we're told in in Deuteronomy 4.9, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and then teach them to their children after them. Grandparents, you've got a job to do. And think about that in the context of your life. You're looking around at somebody that you work with, perhaps, and they keep getting all the pats on the back. They get all the kudos. They get all the promotions, and you never do. And you do your best to do a good job. Why is it that it happens to them and not to you? Think about it in the context of your family. Your brother-in-law, he's always getting everyone's attention. He's driving the latest cars. He's playing at the best golf courses. He's taking the best vacations. He has the nicest home. What is that to you? You must follow Jesus. Your neighbor is always getting everyone's attention. They're the ones that everybody wants to invite out to dinner. You never get invited out. They talk about what a great mom she is, how her kids are always dressed well and and polite. They get all the scholarships. What a great parent they are. What is that to you? Jesus says, you must follow me. Every single one of us, friends, has someone in our life, 
somebody at work, somebody at home, somebody down the street, somebody from our past, somebody that we worship with perhaps. And every time we hear their name or hear them speak, there's something within us that just turns and we say, why them? Why do they get the breaks and not me? Can I let you in on a little secret? It happens to preachers too. Spiritually speaking, we struggle with the same thing that you do. I can tell you when it, when it really became a problem for me. I got my first uh, ordination, my first uh, internship at the church I was married in, at the Hillendale Christian Church in Lexington, Kentucky. That church was begun by Wayne B. Smith. Now, if you've been in the Christian church for any time, you've heard that name. One of the greatest preachers, greatest communicators of the church. And then a solid man, Wayne Holcomb, preached there after him. And I got to cut my teeth on, on some of the best preachers that I had ever heard. Later, I would come to admire guys like Bob Russell and Dudley Rutherford and, and Mike Bro and David Roadcup and Rick Russaw and Dave Stone that I still listen to. And when I came here, I found that this congregation had a great preacher. You had a great man of God leading here and a pastor in Mike Surgeon. And I have heard people say, you know, we had a, a great uh, preacher. Mike was so good looking too. And then we got you. <clears throat> or Mike was such a great preacher. When's he going to come back and fill the pulpit for us? Or Johnny, Johnny Presley, now there's a preacher's preacher. You wouldn't have his email address, would you? <laughs> and just on and on. And, and honestly... It, it, can, it starts to wear on you, and you start to feel inferior. And a preacher who compares himself to other preachers has a problem. And you know what God has taught me over the years? Every time I hear that one of my friends, like Dave Stone, is preaching in a church of over 7,000 people, or that Mike Bro is out in California preaching to a church of over 10,000 people, or one of my friends has a small group ministry that is just growing leaps and bounds, God says to me, Bill, what is that to you? You must follow me. You see, what I think has to define us is the last question that's there on your outline. Number three, whose opinion will define you the most? Whose opinion will define you the most? For some of us, we're living waiting for the approval of someone who will never give it. We're waiting for the encouragement from a dad who no longer walks this earth. Or we're living for an I'm sorry from a spouse who's never going to say those words. We're living our life and making our choices on where to worship, what to do as a career or school, or what to do for fun based upon what we hear everyone else whisper. And yet the Apostle Paul says, how ignorant. What is that to you? You must follow Christ. You know, the person who wrote the book of Hebrews gave a great analogy I think that it kind of sums all this up when he says in Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And here's the key. Let's run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Bill Warax? <laughs> no way. On your sister or brother-in-law? On the guy at the office who keeps getting promotions? No. On, on the person sitting behind you or next to you in worship this morning? No. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what he's saying. There's a race that you're running, but it's not against the people next to you. It's to run simply towards Jesus. And you know the quickest way to lose a race is to start looking over your shoulder or be distracted by the other people around you. You just run to him. And every time you struggle with this, what I want you to hear is a lesson that I learned from watching my daughter at her track meets. This is it. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. You may be realizing now that you're not going to have the most profitable business around, but you keep trying to be a good parent. You try to be a good spouse. You try to maintain integrity at the office, and that's great. You stay in your lane. You may be realizing you're never going to look like that mom down the street. You're never going to fit into the clothes you wore 20 years ago. Your life's never going to look like the life somebody lives on Facebook or Instagram. But you're trying your best to be a person of inner character and faith and moral beauty. And that's fantastic. You stay in your lane. You may be looking around at other people's families and kids or their grandkids and say, why are they so gifted? Why are they so blessed monetarily and with opportunities? Why does everybody always talk about their family, but you're trying to be a good and godly parent? You stay in your lane. Because what is that to you? What goes on in their lives? You follow Jesus. And following him, it breaks all the chains. It breaks the power of sin. It breaks the power of envy in your life. Because friends, the one who loves you more than anyone, the one who has the greatest plan for your life, waits with open arms at the finish line. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for you this morning. And maybe you started running the wrong race. Maybe you've gotten off the path that was marked out for you and and you're running a race for someone's approval, but the only degree that matters in this life to hang on your wall or to hang on your heart is the degree of AUG, approved unto God. Friends, would you come to him? Give him your life this morning. Be baptized into his forgiveness for the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're looking for a church home and you're ready to put your membership here. Whatever it is, I want you to come. But before you do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for honesty and authenticity. That people like John could be who they were and yet be moved by your Holy Spirit to record in your word, Holy Scripture. Things like running faster than one another or being the most loved or tagging along, just wanting to be part of. Because we do all those things too. Father, we are not perfect. We are sinners. We all fall short of your glory. We all need your grace. We all need to hear and respond. Lord, we, we love you. As David said in their meditation this morning. And we need to hear you say as well, then feed my sheep. I'm not done with you. I'm not done with your family. I'm not done with your grandchildren. I'm certainly not done with you. You be the man of God, the woman of God I meant for you to be. You come with humility. You recognize the impact that is passed off generation to generation through your obedience. And you answer the question, will my opinion matter more to you than anyone else? 
Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for this day and for whatever decision you placed on your children's hearts. In Jesus' name.